grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Habakkuk, please. If you know where the, uh, the Old Testament stops and the New Testament begins in your Bible, you can go there and just turn back five books and you'll be in Habakkuk. And as we get started on that, I want to uh, just make a quick correction to something I said last Sunday. Uh, during the message, a verse came to mind that I hadn't thought about in forever, and um, uh, the verse, uh, known unto God are all his works from uh, the beginning of the world. And I said to you, I, I think that's Acts sixteen eighteen, but it bothered me, and I looked when I got home, and it's actually Acts fifteen eighteen. So if that matters to anybody, uh, if you want to change it in your notes, we just strive really hard to teach the Word of God uh, with accuracy and excellence and conviction here. So I wanted to clarify that as we uh, get started this morning. And if our buddy Moose had been here last week, he would have called me out on that one <laughs> in real time. Well, as we're making our way through the Bible, we came last week to a man with an odd name, Habakkuk, a prophet of God in the nation of Judah. This is where God's people lived. The uh, northern section of that land known as Israel, um, those people had already been attacked by the Assyrians and most of them carted off into captivity. And right below now is the nation of Judah, also God's people. They're living in sin. Uh, they've become corrupt. They're cheating one another. They're extorting one another. Um, they're worshiping idols. And God has been sending prophet after prophet to them to warn them that if they don't turn back to him, judgment is going to come just as it did to their brothers in the north. But they've continued turning a deaf ear to the calls of God, and the clock is ticking, and judgment day is drawing closer and closer. And Habakkuk is in this scene, and he's ministering for, for God, and he just reaches a point where he becomes so fed up with all the evil that he sees around him. It's everywhere. We've, we saw this in Jeremiah, um, where even if I can just put it in today's language, even in the church, there's corruption and evil taking place. Could you imagine such a thing ever? It's hard to, hard to imagine, right? And so Habakkuk looks at this day after day, year after year, and he's just sick of it. And so last week in chapter one, we saw Habakkuk questioning and complaining. He comes to God and he says, God, do you not see the trouble we're in? Do you not hear the prayers we've been praying, God? Where are you? Are you ever going to do anything about this? And uh, as I mentioned, he, Habakkuk is a godly man. Uh, he's, he is so passionate about um, the, the service of the Lord and about holiness that this is driving him crazy. And so he comes and he, he unleashes all of this on God and kind of comes right up to the, the borderline of accusing God of not listening and not hearing and not caring. Now, if you've walked any miles with the Lord at all, if you've experienced any of real life at all, you have come to that line a time or two yourself. And I certainly have. Where we just come to God and say, why are you not listening? 
Why are you not answering prayers? God, I've been praying for a year, two years, five years, ten years. Where are you? That was Habakkuk in chapter 1, questioning and complaining. We come to chapter 2 today, and we find him in a totally different posture, and one that I hope all of us can come to every time we are in this place of questioning and complaining. So he goes now from that place. Today we see in chapter 2, he now is waiting and listening. Waiting and listening. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk speaking, he said, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, God, will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Oh boy. Now, you remember um, the answer that Habakkuk got in chapter 1 to his frustration of God, are you not going to do anything? I believe uh, Habakkuk was assuming the same kinds of things you and I assume when we take our problems to God, that God was going to come down and just make everything great. But the answer that he got was not what he wanted to hear. God said, oh, Habakkuk, um, I hear you. I see you. I've heard all your prayers. I know exactly what's going on, and I am, in fact, working behind the scenes. And God said, I'm working things out in a way, Habakkuk, that even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. And what was that? God said, I am raising up the nation of Babylon, an evil, pagan, godless, bloodthirsty nation. God is raising up Babylon for the purpose of one day coming south and attacking his people in Judah and destroying them. Whew. That's a tough one to swallow. But that's what God told Habakkuk, and he was not ready for that answer. Now he's in a bit of shock, if you will. And he realizes how much bigger God is than him, how much greater his plans are than his simple understanding, and so we find Habakkuk now saying, I'm going to stand my watch. I'm going to set myself on the rampart to watch and see what he will say to me. The, the language he's using here is not familiar to us. Anybody in his day reading this would have instantly known uh, what he was talking about. He's referring to an observation tower. They used to build these along the city walls very high up above everything else. And it was a place where, um, you know, a sentinel, a soldier could go and they would take shifts and they would stand watch up there in these towers. I brought a picture of one uh, that still exists today. That's exactly what Habakkuk was talking about. Habakkuk says, now I've brought my frustrations to God. I've run my mouth for a long time. And now, now I see that what I need to do, I need to climb up in the watchtower. And I need to be quiet, and I need to watch and look and wait for God to come and answer me. I also think it's quite telling that he says, um, he clearly reveals that he is expecting to be corrected by God for all the things that he said in chapter 1. But even with impending correction being a possibility, 
he still chooses to wait and listen no matter what news he may hear from God. Wow. Um, I mean, that, that gives me a glimpse into Habakkuk's heart like nothing else. You know, we saw in chapter one how fiery he is, how passionate he is for God's truth. And yet we see here that he's also humble and teachable. Humble and teachable. Uh, did he need to be? He was a prophet. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. Surely he was above being taught anything. But as I've said before, listen, one of the greatest traits you and I can ever have in our life is no matter how many degrees we get, no matter uh, what status we achieve, no matter we, if we have the, the corner office in the highest floor of the office building, even if we're going around teaching and um, imparting truth and all, all this to others, the most important trait you and I can have is to remain humble and teachable. It really scares me. I, it doesn't happen often, but once in a while, I run into somebody who is not teachable. Um, that's a very dangerous place to be. Habakkuk says, boy, I've kind of, uh, I feel like I've overshot the runway here with God. Um, and I need to sit down. I need to be quiet. And I need to wait. And God is going to come. I know he's going to come. He's going to answer me again. He's going to speak and boy, I'm, I might even get the rod this time, but that's okay. This is where I need to be. You know, I wonder if after you and I pour out our requests to God, do we ever stop and wait expectantly to hear from God? It's, it's odd. We see, <clears throat> we see prayer as a one-way communication. All right, God, here I am again. I've only got a few minutes, but man, I got a list of stuff I need to tell you. Are you listening, God? Pay attention. I got I to gotta, uh, rattle off my problems to you and my needs and my desires. I hope you're listening, God. And God's saying, yeah, I hope you're listening too. I would encourage you. You know, prayer, uh, prayer is a challenge. Uh, if you've been saved for 5 or 10, 15, 20 years, and you still struggle to pray, Join the club. Don't be discouraged by that. I've spoken to several of you over the years. You know, you said to me, why is it so hard for me to pray? I can go to a movie. I can sit for two hours in a movie without ever being distracted. And yet I stop to pray. And 37 seconds into my prayer, I'm remembering that I need to change the oil in my car. And so I say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Let me start again. You start again, 18 seconds in, you're thinking, gee, I wish I had some chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> it's spiritual warfare. Why does Satan not bother you in the movie? After we bring our concerns to God, I would encourage you, try to get in the, the practice. I'm talking about for your own personal walk with him. Of just pausing and just shutting up, just being quiet and listening. This is what Habakkuk is doing. He's humble. He's ready to listen. He's ready to receive whatever God may need to say to him, even correction. Well, we're not told how long Habakkuk had to wait, but his waiting and listening paid off. He got an answer in verse 2. 
Then the Lord answered me and said, Write a vision and make it plain on tablets, that he who runs, uh, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak, and it will not lie. Though it linger, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not delay. Now, I don't have time to get into the, the runner thing. It ties into their culture that day. They had runners who would take news from city to city. Um, and God wants this word that he's speaking to Habakkuk to not just exist in Habakkuk's head and his thoughts. He wants him to write it down so that the message can be carried out to others. That's the, the basic gist of that there. And then uh, in verse 3, uh, he says, uh, it's, it seems like a contradiction. If you really look at this verse, you could almost say, aha, I found a contradiction in the Bible. It says, for the vision is yet for an appointed time. And then it goes on to say, even though it linger, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not delay. Now, he says it might linger, but it will not delay. What? Well, you see, we, we learn a very important lesson in this little statement here. The first part of that, though it linger, is the view from our perspective. Boy, God seems to linger sometimes, doesn't he? Oh, man, God, would you please hurry up? I need an answer by Thursday. Though it linger, he's saying to Habakkuk, you're going to feel like this is taking forever. But then he switches to God's perspective and says, it will not delay. In other words, it might linger, but it's not going to linger. It might delay, but it's not going to delay. In your eyes, it's late. But in my eyes, it's right on time. I want to tell you something, folks. <clears throat> this is no great insight. It's just a reminder. Following God by faith requires patience. Abraham had to wait 25 years for God's promise to him to be fulfilled. 25 years. Joseph's life got derailed for 13 years sitting in a dungeon for a crime he didn't commit. Thirteen years. David had to wait almost 15 years after he was anointed as king to actually become king. Waiting is one of the components of faith. It's, it's one of the main gears inside the, the engine of faith. You take out waiting, you take out patience, faith doesn't work. Sometimes it is difficult. In fact, most times it is difficult. God has his appointed time, though. As it says in verse 3, but if that seems slow to us, need to be absolutely certain of this every time God's word will come to pass and it will not be a minute late. 
Take encouragement in that. If you're there this morning, you're waiting, you've been crying out to God, and it just seems like deafening silence. You're in the lingering part. You're saying, God, this is lingering. It's taking too long. God says, no, no. I need to keep you in the fire for a little longer. You're not quite done yet. And at the appointed time, I will show up and I will answer your prayer. Be patient. Maybe you're in a holding pattern today. It feels like God's just not listening. He's not answering. I would say to you, and I'm not being flippant when I say this, but this is the answer. Keep waiting. Keep listening. Keep walking by faith. Because that's precisely how we're called to live. It's expounded on a little further in verse 4. If you look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, Behold his soul, it's referring to the, the pagan, the unbeliever, those living in sin. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, or it's not righteous within him, but the just shall live by his faith. God is making clear contrast here between um, those who think they can live life and handle death on their own versus those who readily acknowledge their dependence upon God. The person who's convinced that he can handle life and death on his own is puffed up. He's, he's proud. He would never think of humbling himself and admitting that he needs God. I got life, God. Thanks. I got it figured out. On the other hand, the just, it's a word we don't use in this way today. The just, it means the righteous, those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. The just, on the other hand, are guided by a totally different set of principles as they go through life. Instead of looking inward for guidance and wisdom, they continually look upward. Instead of living by their own wits, they live by faith. They trust in what God has said simply because God said it. Are you at that place with God? Can you trust God even when he doesn't show up? Do you trust him just because he said it? There are two types of people who go through life. Those who think they don't need God and those who know they do. The, the proud man, this puffed up man that this verse talks about, thinks he can find all the answers within himself, but he'll come to the end of his life alone and uncertain of what lies beyond the grave. But the man who looks to God for answers and direction will not only know the, the guiding hand of God throughout his life, but when he comes to death, he will know that that same loving, wise, guiding hand will lead him into eternity. Do we understand what comfort that should bring to us? I mean, I'm astounded at the people <clears throat> I know who live in fear of death. They're terrified to die. Why? 
as believers, we, we should not fear death at all. I, I shared with you, you know, last year after my heart attack in the ambulance racing down, well, right down 385 there. There was a point when alarms started going off and I could tell by the, the look on the lady's face that something was very wrong. And they started yelling at each other, you know, not yelling, but <clears throat> giving orders and get this and get that. And, and I remember just sort of drifting into this, the most peaceful state I've ever experienced in my life. Honestly, I feel silly talking about it because I don't know how to describe it. I've only experienced that one other time in my life, about 25 years ago or so. And I've never talked about that one. But I remember being there, the sound of the siren above my head, these two frantic people working on me to do whatever they were doing. And there wasn't one ounce of worry. Now that didn't come from me. Because I'll worry all day long if you let me. It was a supernatural, and I don't use that word loosely. It was a supernatural moment. Where I believe God just graciously allowed me to sort of peek into the other side. And go, hey Phil, all the stuff in life you're worried about. You're clamoring and frustrated and racing to get this done. And you're concerned about this and that. And Boy, feel this for a few seconds. But the person without God is not going to know that. They come to death. You should read some of the last words of unsaved people throughout time. It'll make your blood run cold. But the man who lives by faith knows that that same hand who has guided him all the way through life will guide him through the valley of the shadow of death. And he has nothing to worry about. The just shall live by his faith. That's how we live. We live by faith. This statement is so important. It's quoted three times in the new Testament in Romans, Galatians and Hebrews and the new Testament, um, sort of expounds on it even further. So this is a timeless truth here. See, as I said a minute ago, there, there are people who think they've got it all together, and there are people who know they don't. God can work with one of them, but he cannot work with the other. James 4, 6 reminds us of this. God, look at this word, God resists the proud. It's like stiff-arming someone in football. That's the word. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You remember the uh, account Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both went down to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood, I imagine, thumbs under the lapels of his robe. And he stood there and he literally said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men especially this vile tax collector. I thank you that I'm not like them. Why? I tithe. I do all the religious stuff, God. I'm a good person. But meanwhile, it says, the tax collector lowered his gaze. He didn't even feel worthy enough to look up to heaven. He lowered his gaze and he said, Lord, be merciful to me 
a sinner. You go, well, okay, great, great story. What's, what's the point? Here's the point. Jesus concluded that by saying that it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who went home justified. Here's our word again, the just shall live by faith. Boy, everybody looking on, they would have put their money on the, on the uh, Pharisee. Jesus says, you got it all wrong. It's that humble man right there on his knees, looking down, crying out for mercy. He's the one who went home justified in my sight because he humbly acknowledged his desperate need for God. He recognized and admitted that he didn't have what it takes. And so he cried out to God for help and turned to him by faith. Look, that's not just a one-time event in your life. Yes, there's that moment for all of us when we need to come to the place where we recognize we are rotten sinners. The best of you are. You're a filthy sinner. And the only way to remedy that, the only way to ever be in the presence of God when this life is over, is if your sin is taken away. And you can't do that for yourself. It's only by trusting in what Jesus did for you that on the cross we're told he took your sin upon himself and he gave you his righteousness. There's the word again, just. The just shall live by faith. How do you, how do you become just? You believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and you're washed clean. That's the one event in life where, you know, we, we talk about um, <clears throat> crying out to God and turning to him by faith. But look, the moment of salvation is not the only time we need to do this. There are millions of time, times through the course of our lives where we need to pause and we need to once again say, Lord, I'm in a situation, I, I, this is just bigger than me. I don't know what to do. God, I once again turn to you by faith. It simply means, God, I'm looking to you. I'm relying on you, not my own intellect, my own resources, my own connections. Now remember, when, when the just shall live by his faith was first spoken there in verse 4, it was spoken to a man who was watching his nation collapse right before his eyes. This was not, he was not living in good times. He was in turmoil about the evil taking place. He was wondering if God was ever going to do anything about it. That's when God spoke those words to Habakkuk. And aren't those the very times we need to be reminded to live by faith more than any other times? When everything's going well, the truth is uh, we don't need God. And I say that with a heavy dose of sarcasm. When things are going well, what do we tend to do? Oh, we don't read the Bible for a month. We don't pray. We don't, there's no need to turn to God. But boy, when the hammer and fire comes... What does that cause us to do? It reminds us to call out to him, to run to him. It reminds us that we need to be living by faith. And God gives some insight to Habakkuk that all those people who are living in sin, who've rejected God, who are living for themselves, they are the ones who are going to be cut off. But the just will live when the righteous are cut off. And what is it that's going to keep the just 
the righteous secure in the midst of dark and troubling times? It's simply this again. They are the ones who are living by faith. We see this throughout the Bible. I mean, I don't, I don't have time to pursue this, but if you want to read Hebrews chapter 11 later, read that. It, it takes the time in the New Testament there to go back to the Old Testament and recall person after person after person. Um, and what does it say to them about them? It says, uh, oh, this person, the reason they're just in my eyes is because they went to church every Sunday. And this one here, this one made it in because, whoo, he gave a lot of money to missions. Doesn't say any of that. You know, it repeats it like a drumbeat through Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. It goes on and on and on. By faith. By faith. That's how they made it through. By faith. Listen, I want to encourage you in something this morning, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the trial, no matter what the obstacle, the answer is always to live by faith. But Phil, you don't understand. How am I supposed to make it through this setback? Live by faith. Yeah, but Phil, I'm overwhelmed with life. My parents have never been in this situation before. I don't know how to proceed. I... Live by faith. Phil, why would God allow such a terrible thing to happen? How am I supposed to make sense of this? You live by faith. And listen, I'm not being flippant about this. I'm not just saying, oh, you got big problems? Live by faith. No, I'm telling you, that is the answer. That is the answer. When you can't see a step in front of you, what are you to do? You're to keep walking by faith. Knowing that the hand who led you to salvation will lead you the rest of the way. Someone once said, faith is like standing at the edge of a 1,000 foot cliff, knowing with certainty that God has called you to take another step. And knowing with absolute certainty that when you take that step, one of two things will happen. Either a bridge will appear, or he'll teach you how to fly. No, that's not bad. That's not bad. It's that step of, not self-confidence, it's that step of God-confidence. I'm not talking about foolishness. I'm not talking about going in the X Games and thinking that God's going to protect you and all that kind of stuff. But I mean just living daily life, knowing with certainty you know, like David Livingston said, they said to him, please, please don't go to Africa. There are headhunters there. You're going to die. And Livingston said, I am invincible until the moment God is finished with me. Hey, you should try to make that part of your daily routine to remind yourself. Life comes at you. People come against you. People threaten you in one way or another physically or financially or relationally, you just puff out your chest and go, bro, I'm invincible. Bring it on. 
I am invincible. Now, I'm not saying that in an arrogant way at all. I'm saying it, we should live that way with such total reliance on God's goodness and care that we live with confidence in him, not in fear. Habakkuk forgot that for a while. He became so distracted by all the evil and the wickedness that he saw around him that it caused him to start living in fear. God, what's going to happen? This is scaring me. And so he he began living in fear rather than living by faith. But God said, in essence, Habakkuk, don't worry about it. I'm at work behind the scenes. Even as you're panicking and worrying about this, I'm already at work behind the scenes, working all things out in accordance with my will. And Habakkuk, the day is coming when they'll be destroyed, but the just will live on by their faith. And for the next nine verses, God describes the outcome of the wicked. And I'll let you pursue that on your own. But he starts talking about all the things that are going to happen to the wicked. And and partway through that dark discourse, he inserts this bright ray of hope in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a strange thing to say, considering the violence and unrest and evil and injustice taking place across the nation. But as I said a minute ago, it's, it's when Habakkuk's life had come to its worst place. When he had almost lost hope in God. It's then that God sends a reminder, reminding him, Habakkuk, listen, all of man's attempts to live without me are going to fail miserably in the end. They'll be swept away in my judgment, but the just will live forever in my presence. What an amazing thought to think that the day is coming when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You know, you can't cover anything much more compactly and densely and completely than the ocean covers things. That's covered, man. God says the day is coming. Habakkuk, you see all this evil around you? Or maybe it's not even around you. Habakkuk, you look in your own home and you're falling apart. You look in your own heart and you see the evil there and you're struggling with all of these things. Habakkuk, Don't worry. Live by faith. Live by faith. All this evil that you see is going to be gone one day, but the just will live on by their faith. It's a reminder we all need to hear. Um, Anybody here had any times in the last few years when you genuinely grew worried about the blatant wickedness that we see sweeping across our nation and our world? Anybody slightly concerned about that? I have been. You ever panic when you see how literally corrupt our government is to the core and how they are systematically destroying our nation? Anybody ever get worried and panicked about that? I do sometimes. It's scary to see the moral decay all around us, but we must remember that one day, one day, All of those tyrants who think they're calling the shots 
they're going to find out they're not even a speck of dust compared to the one who's truly calling the shots. You want a beautiful summary of this? I love Psalm chapter 2. Look at this quickly. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Listen to this. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Don't tell me Christ isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. There he is right there. So they're, they're taking counsel together against the Lord and against Christ, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure, saying, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God looks at all this stuff going on that perturbs us so deeply. And he says, just wait. Just wait. I know it's hard. Just wait. The day is coming when all of those people will be swept away and the king of kings will be on the throne forever. This, uh, this precious promise, this, these must have been such beautiful words for Habakkuk to hear. The same promise that brought him hope so long ago is still a beacon of hope and truth for us today. You see, here's the thing. Knowing what we're talking about right now, knowing this completely changes the narrative for us. It rewrites the story for us here on this earth. It means that while you and I have to live in this world, we don't have to be paralyzed or enslaved by it. I wonder, do you as a believer, do you know with certainty that whatever may come, whatever may come, that we are not guided by or sustained by or beholden to the dictates of this world? They live by their wits. They live by their lust and their greed and their desires and their wants, but the just shall live by faith. They're looking to get all they can here and now, but we are looking patiently and expectantly for that day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day. God is the one who has ordained the end. And for those living without God, listen, if that's you this morning, I just, I'm telling you straight up. When that end comes, for those living without God, that end will be horrific. But for those living by faith, that end will be just the beginning. Well, for the rest of Habakkuk chapter 2, God describes the clever plans and the schemes of the wicked. They're thumbing their noses at God right now, but God has the last word, and he gives the last word in the last verse of chapter 2. Look at Habakkuk 2.20. All of this terrible stuff going on, and we see the word but. Oh man, things are so bad, Phil, you wouldn't believe how bad it is. never going to get better. We're going to die. We're going to... But... But you want to know what's going on while all that's going on? But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
Let all the earth keep silence before him. Wow. God has just finished describing all the vain pursuits of those who look to and depend on uh, lifeless wooden idols for their help and their hope. And I know we hear the word idols and we immediately disassociate. We're like, oh, that's Old Testament stuff. But this is referring to, in general, the things of this world, anything that you and I look to and depend on more than God, that's an idol. God says you can call on them all you want, but they're not listening. And in the end, they'll leave you alone. And in sharp contrast to that, he says, all the stuff going on, but the Lord is in his holy temple. You know, that's a phrase that you and I should bring to mind often. When you're in a situation, you want to lash out, you want to, you know, you want to act in the flesh, you're just so overwhelmed by something, you go, you know what? The Lord's in his holy temple. Why in the world? Why am I having an ulcer over this? And he says, because of that, the earth needs to be silent before him. So we come back to where I started about listening to God. You see, if we don't listen to God, the only other option is to turn to lifeless idols. Uh, look at Matthew 17, 5. It says, while he was still speaking, Jesus, a bright cloud enveloped them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And you know, to really listen to someone, you have to be quiet. You have to stop talking. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's a posture of humility and teachability. We saw that in verse 1. Habakkuk has gone from railing against God to saying, Oh boy, I might have spoken out of turn. I'm going to be quiet and still before him. Job found this. Job 6.24, he said, Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Solomon knew this. Ecclesiastes 5.2, he said, Do not be rash with your mouth and let your heart utter anything hastily before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. There's a good memory verse. You know, as the church, we ought not be people who run our mouths. You hear something about somebody and you're on the phone with eight other people. Did you hear? That should never be true of us. Let your words be few. It's easy for us to get bent out of shape when we see all the evil around us. But God says, shh, be still. Wait for me and just keep living by faith. Well, I'll wind it all down with this. David writes this in Psalm 37, verse 7, rest in the Lord. Now, David is a man who throughout his Psalms, you read them and it's like, wow, he really says some rough things to God. Same, same line of thinking here, God, where are you? But then he says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Asaph saw this as well. He was the worship director for the entire nation. So this is the big shot. Asaph was the man. And yet, even he reached a point where he just couldn't take another day of seeing wicked people prosper and get away with their sin while those following God seemed to have such battles. And in Psalm 73, verse after verse after verse, I mean, boy, he lays it on thick to God. And he says, this is not right. It's not fair. The evil are prospering, but those who do right are suffering. And he even admits at one point that he's jealous of them sometimes. But as soon as he got his focus back on God and on God's word, look at what he wrote in verse 16, Psalm 73, 16. When I tried to understand this, it was too painful for me. Oh, don't stop there. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Mm-hmm. Then I understood their end. Just like Habakkuk, Asaph, man, he was, he was distraught by the evil in the world. But here's the conclusion he came to, and it's where I want us to, clue, to conclude today. Psalm 73, verse 25. After all of his worry, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But, there it is again, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Uh, this is beautiful what we see here. Habakkuk and David and Asaph and so many others, they went from questioning and complaining to waiting and listening. Where are you today? Are you stuck in chapter one? It's okay, I've been there. I'll be there again. And I might need you to come to me and remind me of this. You stuck in chapter one? Questioning and complaining? God, this is not right. Why are you allowing this to happen? Oh, be very careful. How about today you say, God, move me into chapter two. I want to go from questioning and complaining you to waiting and listening expectantly, eagerly for your voice, even if it means correction. There's no better place to be. Let's pray. Father, I know, honestly, it has almost become a Christian cliche to talk about waiting on the Lord. It seems like, a, it seems like just a ready, easy, lazy answer to give to people, but it's not. It's not. That is the answer. The answer is no matter what we're facing, the way we get through it, is to live by faith, trusting in you. 
even though we can't see an inch in front of our face, we don't know how to work this out. We are to live by faith. We are to say, God, I trust in you and I'm going to cling to you forever. Come hell or high water. I'm trusting in you. And God, if you need to correct me to solve this, you do that, God. I'm waiting for whatever you need to say. Oh, Lord, bring us to that place today, would you? Remove pride from us. May we not be puffed up. May we not be the kind of person who who thinks that we've got life figured out. We can make it just fine. Lord, we can't. We can't. Lord, would you burn into our heart today our desperate need to wait for you and to live by faith. May that be so of this church family, I pray. I want to remind you that this is a time for response. If God has spoken to you in some way and you need help, or you'd just like to talk to someone, have someone listen, you can come and see me at the back. I'd be more than happy to speak with you. And there are ladies at the back as well, ready to speak with you. You do whatever God is telling you to do right now. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my